0: Luke 19. Uh, this is the story of the parable of the pounds or the parable of uh, not story a parable is what it's called. Um, we have gone through this, I think many times and Protestants have and so on and so forth through the years and often it is mentioned in tandem with the parable of the talents and explaining a little bit of the difference between the two. But I don't want to do that in the historical way today. I basically want to go through this in terms of definition. Because it's easy to read and say, well, I would like to increase my pound five times or I would like to increase my pound ten times. Uh, And perhaps we leave it at that all too often and we don't define what we have to do or what is required in order to increase that five times or ten times. Uh, We have... Head knowledge or intellectual understanding that God wants us to increase, but do we really focus on what it means, what is required to do that? And that's more of the way I want to approach it today. A little bit different, as I say, but uh, but it might be valuable to to try to get a little more definition here. Now let's begin there in Luke 19. You're already there, I'm not. Luke 19. And beginning, let's see, down about verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And certainly we fit in that category. A lot of other people do. And before the plan is finished, uh, everyone will have a chance at salvation. But our day of salvation is now. So we will apply this to ourselves as we sit here. And as they heard these things in verse 11, he added and spoke a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He was telling them here in a code form that the kingdom of God would not immediately appear because the parable has to do with this master going off on a long journey. So there was some time in which these people could produce something. Now it mentions that he was near to Jerusalem. What does that have to do with it? Uh, Perhaps because he refers to government here as well. It's not just a parable of pounds, but it's in a governmental context. Let's notice that. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said to them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called to him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds. And I'll read on through it, so we'll re ourselves, and then we'll go back. And he said to him, Well, you good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, have you authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has gained five. And he said, Likewise to him be you also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You take up that you laid not down, and reap that you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore, then, gave not your money into the bank, that at my coming I might require my own with usury. And he said to him, to them that stood by, Take from him that pound, and give it to him that has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. For I say to you, that unto every one which has shall be given, and from him that has not, even that he has shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. And then he went on to Jerusalem from there. So there was there's some rebellion involved here in the setting of this. It's not just a story to tell us that we are to increase our pound, whatever that might be, but we have to be willing to do whatever the master wants us to do. So there's an attitude involved here, and the parable is of money, dollars or rands. Uh, has to do with monetary value. And yet, also, the ruling of cities has to do with doing things the way the Master wants them done. And if we're not willing to do things the way He wants them done, then we're not going to be ruling any cities. No matter how much we might increase down here in some respects, we can act religious, we can do certain things, but if we're not doing everything according to His plan and purpose and His will, and doing everything we can to please Him, then it will mean nothing because we are going against his desires and ways. I think if you would have asked the Pharisees if they had great treasure in heaven, they would have said yes. They would have thought that they had increased their pound many times over if you had asked them their self-analysis on the matter. But they were not willing to submit to doing things his way. They had a religious way, but it wasn't his way. And therefore, they're not going to be ruling over cities in the world tomorrow. So there's a lot here to do with attitude, not just multiplication. Now, I think we probably understand that God is not interested in gold and silver. All the silver is his, the gold is his. So he's not expecting us to have a certain amount of money, and then we increase that money. But there's an analogy here. It is spiritual value that needs to be increased. How much spiritual value do we have? Now, as we first came into God's church, we first began to repent. We were coming out of a world and we were like this world, and we had no spiritual value. As Herbert Armstrong termed it, he had to come to see he was a hunk of burned out or a burned out hunk of junk, is the way he said it. But he had no spiritual value, no matter what value he may have attached to himself in this world and in business and so on he came to realize that spiritually, he was bankrupt. He was opening a new account, let's say, a spiritual account, which he had never had before. And his starting balance was zero. And that's where we all started out, with a zero bank account, uh, as far as God is concerned. So, he gives everyone a pound. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us knowledge of his truth. And we're expected to do something with that. We're supposed to increase that five times, ten times over the period of our lives so that our spiritual value begins to increase over a period of time. I mean, why does God want to save us unless there's something there of value? Down the road, five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, forty years after our conversion, what is our spiritual value at that point? what will our spiritual value be when Christ returns? That is the question here, and that is the analogy. Now perhaps, I I don't know, uh, only recently having thought of this, he was near to Jerusalem. Maybe he brought that in and spoke this parable at that particular juncture because Jerusalem was the seat of government for Israel. And in analogy, the new Jerusalem uh, will be the seat of God's government. When Christ comes back, he will be at Jerusalem. That's where he will govern from. That's where he will rule from. Now, they weren't willing to listen to him at that point, even before he went back and brought the kingdom. And according to the end of this parable, there will be some who are not willing to listen when he comes back. So he makes this governmental tie-in perhaps because Jerusalem was near and he could use it as part of the example. So what he's saying here is who will respond to me as master? Who will listen to me? And we have to remind ourselves that we are bond slaves of Christ, that we were bought with a price. Uh, We aren't our own anymore. Our life belongs to him. And we have to live by every word of God. And most people on this earth are not willing to live by every word of God. They're willing to give lip service to the Bible, and there are certain things in here they might like that they are willing to follow. But for the most part, they're not willing to live by every word. And I'm finding that in God's church today, that this is also still a pertinent premise. Many people are not willing to obey and live by every word of God. You can show them... What the book says, but they're not willing to accept it. And they're supposedly converted. So, where does that leave us in terms of multiplying the pound and submitting to God? So, yes, we usually read this and we agree we'd like to make ours ten pounds. But the question for today is how? What does it mean? How do you go about it? How do you know if you're making progress? We need to know if we're making progress in some form or another. Uh, The kids go to school, and there are progress reports every so often. The teacher writes and says, so-and-so is doing well, or so-and-so sure needs a fire lit under him. Uh, They make an analysis, in other words, of the progress of that student and whether he can continue to progress in school or go back through the same material again until he gets it, or what. Now, with physical money, it's easier, isn't it? You can sit down and count it. The spiritual poses a somewhat different problem. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to analyze whether we are making progress or not. But there are those among us, and we ourselves can be very guilty of it if we're not careful, of assessing ourselves far better than God does. Remember Revelation 3 Uh, The most prevailing uh, attitude at this particular time in church history uh, is very likely Laodiceanism. And there, people say they have great treasure in heaven. They say that they are rich and increased with spiritual goods and have need of nothing. In other words, my bank account, my safe deposit box is completely full. I'm doing fine, thank you. It's all you others out there who have the problem. You're the Laodiceans. Now, is there a certain amount of room in that attitude uh, for some self-deception, I ask you. And we have to be very, very careful of how we assess our spiritual condition. Uh, to use another example, you know, the Pharisee beat his breast and said, "Me, Tarzan spiritually. Uh, and uh, then there was the the publican who bowed his head and said, you know, I'm spiritually bankrupt. And Christ said he gave a lot more credit to the one who had the poor in spirit, meek attitude of, I'm not doing so well in my own eyes. But he was doing better in Christ's eyes than the other guy who thought he was doing great. So how Christ analyzes our spiritual bank account might be quite different than how we analyze our spiritual bank account. So we have to be careful in our assessment. And I think that we can always have the attitude of the publican no matter how well we are doing in some respects because what is our comparison? Our comparison is not to one another or to a Pharisees looking down on a publican. Our comparison is always to Christ and to the Father. And compared to them, we're always almost bankrupt because we are spiritually so much below them that doesn't mean we need to be discouraged because there is that gap between us and him but at the same time when you're hungry is when you work for food and when you think you're fine is when you relax and don't accomplish anything but have you ever tried to increase your money your physical money I think most people try to increase their money in some form or another. Whether it's working, or working two jobs, or working three jobs, or finding other ways to increase their money, they try to do that. We'll come back to that thought in a little bit. Now, when, I think it's important to recognize as you get into this parable, that Christ deals with what first? The man who had the best report. He is positive. He looks for a good report. He doesn't deal with a fellow who had done nothing first. He said, let me see those who have increased it. Let me see those who have done well. And in terms of an analogy here with the first resurrection, that's what he's going to look for first. Those first fruits who have produced. And there again you have the analogy of, of producing something, of gaining something. First fruits are ripe. They have gained sweetness succulence and ripeness through their lives, and therefore can be, they're prepared at that moment to be plucked, and that's what he's going to look at when he first comes back. Where are my first fruits? He'll look around, and they'll be resurrected and or changed immediately, so he deals with them first. Uh, Some people say we have, or have had over the years as the Worldwide Church of God, a negative approach, a negative approach on God. Negative approach because we want to keep the Ten Commandments, which say don't a lot. But that isn't the case really at all. And we need to understand that God is very positive and expects us to do well. So he looks for the one who has done the very best first, the one who would um, increase ten times. And probably when uh, he complimented him, I mean, look at the scene here. All these people standing there and they got their pounds. And the fellow who had not increased it at all probably began to kind of shrink back. He began to feel a little frustrated at that point, and he had absolutely nothing to report. Uh, We'll see what our attitude should be. Now, he deals with a good report first. However, today, let's begin at the bottom to examine a process that's here. I wanted to make that point, that he is very positive about things, but uh, a sequence of events here in terms of what must be done might be better approached from the the bottom. Now, the first one laid it up in a napkin. That was the safest. No risk of loss here. Now, we're talking about money here in terms of the parable. We're talking about spiritual value in terms of the analogy that Christ is putting forth for us. So here was the person who wore a belt and suspenders. He wanted no risk of his pants falling down. In that sense, he wanted no risk of losing this money. Now, is this what God intended? Well, obviously not, as you read the parable of what He did with this person. So, on the surface, on the surface, laying it up in a napkin was the least risky. Uh, but understand that inflation, in terms of money, can eat it away over a period of time. I mean, it's laying there, it's in your mattress or it's in a napkin, or it's hid away somewhere in the house, and over a period of time, it can actually lose value. Any of you who've had money that you've just sat on have learned that. It lies there doing no good either. I mean, it's just sitting there under the mattress, not accomplishing anything for anybody. And it can be taken are stolen away by thieves and burglars. Taxes may take it away. I mean, you may think it's safe to have it just sitting there wrapped up and hidden, but there are any number of things that can happen to that, which is sitting there in a so-called safe position. So, laying it up in a napkin is entirely, what? Passive. There's no action being taken. Nothing is being done to increase Nothing is being done to enhance that which has been given. It's just totally passive on your part. Now, the next category, Christ said, at least you could have given it to the bankers and it could have drawn interest or usury. At least you could have done that. If, you were, if you're going to be passive about it, don't be totally passive. Let somebody else do something with it. And that's really what uh, a banker does. He takes your money... And he works with it, and then gives you a certain interest back on it, certain usury that is paid back to you for the opportunity to increase your money. Now, you're still very passive in that position, aren't you? You're still doing nothing. The banker's doing all the work. He's out here building buildings or loaning it to somebody else, and he's earning money with it, but you're not. So giving it to the banker wasn't much better. Just a little bit, but it still allows for passivity. And that is what has been laid on you and me all too often by the church over the years. Is send your tithes into the ministry, and they'll do the spiritual work, they'll study for you, they'll teach you, and you don't have to really do much at all. And in fact, if you do begin to study, they'll say, Oh, back off, don't study. Because you might learn something, and I'm behind, and I haven't learned that, or you could be wrong, or whatever. But the encouragement, I mean, they, they were always willing to say, you should study your Bible. But then when people did start studying, they got uncomfortable with that. I guess what they wanted us to do, basically, was just read Psalms and Proverbs and get some nice thoughts or you know personal enhancement but not get into doctrine or study the various aspects of the Bible. So we were to turn our tithes in and it became popular to say pray and pay. Pray for us to do God's work and pay your tithes and we will do it. Let them do the spiritual work or a spiritual work. Now the monetary equivalent of that is to let the bankers take care of my wealth, my spiritual value. Leave it to the minister to take care of it. But what if they don't? What if they haven't? What if we have the situation they developed in the church where they were not giving us all that we needed to keep us growing? Now, you can put it in a savings account, but uh, they're doing the work again. What about stocks and bonds? Well, let's say in a savings account, what what's the value there? You loan them your money, and they pay you. Well, right now in the states, you can get two to four percent interest per annum back, Um, and then they take that money and loan it to somebody else, and charge them ten or twelve or fifteen percent. And here, in some cases, even for house mortgages, I I understand is twenty five percent. I don't know what they pay in interest here, maybe it's a little bit higher because they're charging people so much uh, in interest for a project, but it sounds pretty safe to you. But the companies do the work, or the governments do the work, uh, in terms of stocks and bonds. A lot of people have money in stock markets. Well, you're basically passive other than worrying, uh, and perhaps moving your stock account around a little bit here and there to try to get a better return. Now, right now, in the last few years, uh, the U.S. stock market—a lot of people have become millionaires uh, by owning stocks, and they were basically passive. Someone else was doing it; a company was producing, or these um, high-tech companies were growing by leaps and bounds. So the stock keeps going up, and even some of the uh, stayed old conservative types were even have even been gaining. Uh, So I'm not saying you can't make money in the stock and bond market, but generally speaking, over the years, the history has been that you would get a 10 to 12% return, and if you could get a 15% return year in and year out, then that was a pretty good investment. Other companies were taking your money and investing it, and you would get a return on it. But you know What? on that kind of return, whether it's interest in the bank, which is even smaller, or a return of 15 or 20 percent in a bank account, it still takes a long time to even double that money, doesn't it? Because you are not doing anything actively to multiply it. You're gaining a percentage, but not a multiplication, and that's what price is talking about here. Five times, ten times what you started with. Now, over a lifetime, you might not have to make ten times a year. would uh, be nice, I suppose. But the analogy is that we have to put some work into this. That we can't sit and be passive if we expect a big gain. There may be times when we can get a big gain with somebody else managing our money. And I'm not saying it's wrong to put your money in the bank. I have a little money in the bank and I'm drawing interest. I've played in the stock market a little bit and I'm not now. I think it's at a very dangerous level for me to get in. Uh, with what little I would have to put in it but uh, uh, that which goes up must come down and it's already up so I don't want to put it in while it's up because it probably come down on me. But God returns or re- demands more of a return on his investment five times ten times maybe i use this example in here of the, the U.S. government At one time, it had a value in money. It had gold. It had silver. And uh, you had the gold $20 piece. The the money you carried was actually gold. And they began to replace it with paper money. But there was real value there in gold and silver. It wasn't just a pretense. It wasn't lip service, using the analogy to righteousness. I mean, the value was really there. And then along came the Federal Reserve System, which we still have, and it has no connection with our government whatsoever, other than it is the one who lends money to us, or who lends value in that sense. Uh, They are a private banking system that the U.S. government borrows money from, and we pay them interest on that money. They're bankers, and they're our government's bank. Uh, The Federal Reserve chairman is is, uh, nominated by our government, but he's actually appointed, as I understand it, by the Federal Reserve. They accept the nomination we might give to put someone in like Alan Greenspan. But that's not even our money. On the bottom it says Federal Reserve note, which means that it's an IOU to the Federal Reserve, a private bank. So if they give me that dollar bill it says Federal Reserve note, what it is is a statement that I owe them one dollar in value. And the gold and the silver has gone away. There's nothing there to back it. So we're giving lip service to wealth, as many Christians so called, give lip service to true spiritual wealth. It appears that we have something there. But you know one of these days the system's going to come down because... Confidence is going to be lost in a value that really is not there. It's just paper. It says, I have money, but there's nothing there to back it up. And it's like a Christian saying, I have great value to God, but the acts, the living, the attitude are not there, therefore it's going to go poop someday if there isn't real spiritual value in what we do. So we appear in the United States to have money, but we're six or seven trillion dollars in debt. We were the nation the world's greatest creditor nation. Now we are its greatest debtor nation. We're further in debt than anybody. And they can at some point legally foreclose on our country because we owe them so much money. We are in serious trouble. But it's not recognized because there is the Uh, illusion of of great wealth there. And that is what a Laodicean has, is a great illusion of spiritual wealth which God says does not exist whatsoever. John Kennedy tried to put us back on a true value standard by issuing silver certificate dollar bills that said that that money was backed by Silver and he was dead a couple months later. I'm not implying anything necessarily, uh, but there are those who do not want us to have real value there, who want to see the country come down. We'll see how that plays out. Now let's see, where do I want to go here next? A bank takes our money in loans and gives us back a certain amount. Now, what did God the Father do? God the Father gave us His Son. He caused Him to die, that we might be forgiven, that our spiritual, in that sense, deficits would be wiped out, those sins that were there that did not represent any kind of value, and in fact, for baggage, would cause us to be killed. So He had to remove that. And He, in one sense, He loaned Christ to us. And he is very austere about that. He wants a spiritual return. He doesn't cast his bread on the waters without expecting a return. And that's where the austereness in this parable comes in. God does not expect to give us such an incredible gift as his son and go through the risk, go through the turmoil, go through the waiting to see if he did indeed accomplish that which he had been sent to do. And Christ himself put a great deal of effort into controlling his mind and his emotions and his feelings while he was on this earth as a human because he was tempted in all points like as we are. And what an incredible effort it was, never once to give in to those same passions, those same temptations that come upon us. So, what a risk and sacrifice that word that was. Now he tells us in Matthew 6, verse 19, Matthew 6, I'm going to turn back to that one, verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, this fits the analogy of the parable back there as well. Where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are a lot of people in this world today who are seeking materiality, and it is not wrong to have money, it's not wrong to have fine things, but where is our heart, where is our mind, where are our emotions, where is our attention, is it on the things of God or is it on the things of this life? Skipping down to verse 24. No man can serve two masters. You're going to begin to lean to one or to the other. You can't do both. So he says, and these are hard sayings, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. There's more to life than just these physical things. And that's probably what got some of us searching in the first place. We began to realize that there's more there has to be more to life than just living this physical cycle out and going through life, having a home, having a car, having this, having that, and then you die and it's all gone. Can't take it with you. A spiritual character, spiritual value you can take with you. It's still there. Maybe maybe dormant while you're in the grave. But when you're resurrected, that character, that value, will be there. But whatever you have physically will have been wiped away in the meantime. So there is really no comparison. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and then he makes the comparison. Are you much better than they? Are you far more important than they? Which of you, by taking crop can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. They grow, they toil not, nor they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He might have had his finest vestments on him but sitting on his throne, but he still couldn't be as pretty as one of the little flowers that I saw back up in the bird yesterday. Came nowhere near it. So he says, he will take care of us. Verse 30, O you of little faith. Therefore take no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? He says this is something the Gentiles, the unconverted, do. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things, but seek you first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. And then he repeats, not taking any anxious thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take thought for the things of itself today is enough for us to be concerned about now should we work is this saying we shouldn't have a job no because if you don't work you don't eat Paul said and God expects us to work and that's part of our uh, spiritual treasure as well is producing and whatever our hand finds to do doing it with our might if we're employed by someone else giving him a honest day's work is very important and that's part of where we build our spiritual treasure because a lot of the people working around us may be cheating or uh, laying off and not working hard. And if you work hard, it makes them look bad. And often they don't want you to work hard because they don't want to make for you to look better than them. But we're not to worry about it. We need to be worrying, if we're going to worry, about spiritual things. That's where our anxious thoughts come in. Am I doing the things I need to be doing spiritually? That's where the fear of God comes in. See, there's a certain anxiety associated with the fear of God. We should have anxiety about those things. The Laodicean, uh, as defined, is not anxious at all about spiritual things. He thinks he has that part all taken care of. But somebody else has the problem. Now, let's look at some of the things we might do... To increase our spiritual treasure. How do you increase that pound? How do you make it five times or ten times? Hard to quantify, isn't it? James one twenty seven might be a good start. James one twenty seven. I'll turn back and read that rather than just quoting it. James one and verse twenty seven. Well, let's go to verse 26 twenty six first. If any man among you seem to be religious, seems to have spiritual treasure, or is increasing his found, in terms of the analogy, and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If the tongue is wagging about others, putting others down, saying negative things, and there's an awful lot of that going on in the church today, God says that removes treasure. <laughs> but your religion is... Totally vain. It's going to bankrupt your spiritual account if you continue with that kind of thing. And yet I know people, personally, that spend most of their time putting down Herbert Armstrong or this or that minister or each other or whatever. It seems that is the main thought that they go through. All right, verse 27, let's get to the positive side of it. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, first half, visit the widow and the orphan. Now, instead of our tongue wagging about so-and-so and how bad they are, if there are any widows and orphans around, are we taking good care of them? Are we making sure that they aren't left out of things? It's easy for us to visit with our friends. Maybe I'm speaking in terms of congregations of two or three or four or five hundred like we used to have and it was easy to visit with friends but it was real easy to leave out the widow and the orphan and I think we've all probably observed that that's why he says on the second tithe the third tithe that they were to be taken care of to make sure they had their needs covered and to keep himself unspotted from the world do we look like a Dalmatian (laughs) in terms of worldly spots no that's a dog that has spots all over him or maybe we're just one big spot. We're just like the world. Or maybe we break that in half and then we have a little line and we got two spots. And uh, maybe as time goes on, the spots get smaller. Maybe a lot of spots there, but they get smaller and smaller. Until we become solid, pure, white, unspotted from this world. So that the, the things the world is doing around us do not affect our attitudes, our approach, and everything that we do. But it's so easy to let the world spot us. That's one one way you gain treasure in heaven is by taking the spots of this world off and doing the positive things that he tells us to do. While we're in James chapter 5, I just picked out a few. There are are so many things in the Bible you could pick out. James 5 verse 20. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So God is saying that has great spiritual value. If we can iron sharpen iron, if we can encourage one another, help one another uh, by our example, and sometimes in other ways help turn each other from sin, then God says that has great spiritual value to him. It covers a multitude of sins. Hard to quantify in a way, isn't it? We don't know how much our example might have... Uh, Effect on someone else. But I've had people come back to me 20, 30 years ago and say, you said something in a sermon back there that really helped me. And, you know, it's just one of those things that happened to crystallize at that point. Uh, Not that I have a lot of things that I said back there that I, you know, I don't know whether they help people or not. But once in a while, someone who said that to me three or four or five times, you know, here and there, What you said back and I've forgotten what I said back then long since. But something struck them. Something grabbed them. And I think we can all look back on our lives, whether it was reading the Bible or or talking with someone that was a friend in the church or maybe listening to a sermon. There were certain things that really grabbed us. You might have been the only one in the audience that day that that particular thing happened to grab and you focused on it and it helped your life. And our example might do that at times. You know, somebody starts telling a bad joke, and you say, please, I'd rather not hear that. And just that very example might make somebody think the next time they start hearing one, uh, where they might have listened before, now they might say, boy, so-and-so didn't listen to that, so I shouldn't either. there, There can be so many things that turn people from their sin. God counts that with your treasure in heaven. He says to set our candle on a hill to influence others to good in Matthew 5. I won't go back to that, but we're not to hide it under a bushel. We're to quietly go about doing that which is right and setting the example to others that it might cause them to turn to God as well. Another way, Galatians 6, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Do we and our lives project to others love, joy, peace, patience, all those fruits of His Spirit back there. When people think of us, do they think of someone who is projecting those attitudes? Now, I could say a certain name here, and if you knew that person, an image would come in your mind of whether that was a proud and boastful person, or whether that was a meek, humble a uh, teachable person whether that was a person who had his mind on spiritual things and talked about spiritual things or if he was the type of person who had his mind constantly on the physical things Martha Mary in a way you know an image comes into mind is that someone who's always gossiping is that someone who is thinking negative thoughts all the time and trying to put down everything good that might be around them or bland everything that's around them as evil whether it's good or bad see, an image comes to your mind of a person when a name is mentioned for evil or for good. I would rather people thought of the fruit of God's Spirit when they think of me. All too often, I'm afraid they don't. That's why God says turn to Him with our whole heart. That's the whole message of the prophecies and really it's the whole message of the Bible. It was a message of Matthew uh, in the, the Sermon on the Mount that we just... Addressed is that person constantly seeking the kingdom of God. We might analyze our own minds, our own hearts, our own attitudes and thoughts and say, am I earning treasure in heaven? Am I increasing my spiritual value, my pound, by the attitude I have today or the attitude I had last week or the attitude I'm going to try to have next week? let's just look upon that pound instead of a monetary unit here as spiritual value because that's what a pound or a rand or a dollar is a spiritual value or at least it's supposed to be it doesn't have much anymore because of inflation but that's a different story Christ gives us his spirit the earnest of salvation and he expects that spirit to flow through us and out to others and the fruit of his spirit, be projected. So, you spread positive, uplifting thoughts. What good is a good attitude unless you spread it around? You might be feeling good inside, but if you glower at everybody, that doesn't accomplish anything. It's only if that attitude inside is shared, let's say, with a, in terms of a smile. You're feeling good. You have a right attitude. You smile and are encouraging and positive to others. Then you're sharing and it does some good. And isn't that what really what we call the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. When you see somebody who is constantly negative, we're getting close to the end of that, Well, the golden rule is such that we are to do unto others as they do unto us. <laughs> we are to do unto others as we wish them to do unto us. Let's get that right. Do you wish people to say negative things about you all the time? I just uh, read a piece that someone took off the internet where they were castigating Frank and John Wright and myself particularly in that one. I think I've probably got more criticism than the other two, so I guess my, my joy and my persecution uh, that I can uh, leap for joy about is, is a little higher in this case than theirs, but uh, it still is uncomfortable reading things about yourself or hearing things about yourself that are just negative or downright nasty in some cases. Uh, and we don't like to be treated that way. But why is it the human tongue is so easily... Uh, swayed into saying negative things about other people. It just is so easy to do. I saw a billboard here on the way between Joburg and Pretoria which said the tongue is the strongest muscle in the body. And I think that's, well, it may be physiologically true, but it also has probably as much opportunity to do great damage or, great good is any other muscle in the human body. So, there is a truism there. You can wipe out your whole treasure in heaven by the things you say. James says it can do a great deal of danger and damage. So, we have to think about this and think in terms of assessing our real spiritual value. You have to analyze your life. God doesn't expect us to go through life without looking very hard at ourselves as to what what we are doing and whether it has value or not. The things we think, the things we do, the things we say, do they project true spiritual value? Now, let's move away from that and get on to increase. Five times, ten times increase on the spiritual value God handed us, just gave us. Trading, as used in the parable there in Luke 19, implies action. It's not passive. It's a very active thing. Now, I have been involved in doing a lot of trading in my life there for, oh, 12 or so years. i made my own living, apart from a salary in the church. And you know, I'm really thankful for that. Number one, it gave me some life experience that a lot of ministers simply don't get if they came out of college and went out and started telling other people how to live without having had some life experience of their own. And I think that we in many cases, because it was such a great need of pastors here and there, ordained men far too early in their lives, and put them out there without much experience, and that is one reason we had a lot of problems. But To trade creates, or you you have to have, action. I built homes and sold them. And you know, those houses didn't just happen. Even if I borrowed money from the bank, I still had to actually get out there and build them. Otherwise, it was just a pile of materials that had no value. Now, there were times that I was able to increase the value several times over by approaching it from a certain standpoint, that is, if it were my own home, there were times I went out and maybe there would be an old building that no one was using anymore. Maybe it would be partially broken down and in pretty bad disrepair, but the boards and the floors were still good. The uh, the walls, the studs in the walls were still good. I could take the skin apart, not that old house apart, and instead of paying a high premium, let's say for a 2x4 or a 2x6, I could get it and sometimes for nothing. There were times I tore down old buildings um, and they gave them to me for the materials if I would haul everything off and clean the, the, the plot up. Or sometimes we had to pay a minimum amount for the whole building, but still the cost of each one of those individual boards that we were able to use was very, very low. Now it was dusty, dirty, hard work. But the return was higher. Now, if you were building a building for someone else, let's say you were contracting, you didn't do that type of thing because they wouldn't like the idea of a used board going into their house. But if it were my house that I were building that I might perhaps later sell, uh, if that board were used inside the wall, no one would ever see it. And In some cases, it was straighter and better than the lumber that you can buy today. Uh, They took it out of bigger trees with less knots 50 years ago than they do now. Sometimes they're using very small trees and they have lots of limbs and lots of knots and they twist, uh, they, they don't stay straight. So I actually had better lumber but I had to have a lot more work. On the other hand when I sold that house I didn't have near as much money in it as if I had bought new materials and I didn't have to borrow money from the bank to buy those materials and pay it back in interest because I already owned it by virtue of having taken it out of a building and reused it. So yeah, I had to put up with dirt, I had to put up with dust, but I had a much greater chance of multiplying my value, my my physical value in terms of the money. In some cases they call it sweat equity. You do the sweat yourself and you get it built and you didn't pay for all that labor for someone else to do and therefore, you have more equity in your home, more value there that belongs to you than to a bank. Sometimes you have to find bargains. Maybe there's a closeout at a glass place or a closeout at a plumbing place, and you buy the materials cheaper. You have to watch for those things. But why pay top dollar? Why not buy low and sell high? Now that's a principle, really, that Christ is using with us. You understand that he has selected a second-hand rose, a used bride, used and abused by this world, as per Ezekiel 16, and he's cleaning her up and making her a virgin. It says that those 144,000 in Revelation 14 are virgins. Well, they're not virgins in terms of having uh, lived their lives uh, without being married. They aren't virgins in terms of of this world unless and until Christ takes used people who have been in this world and spotted by this world and he puts in the sweat equity himself to clean us up. He came down here and lived the perfect life where we hadn't and his equity in us then was purchased very hard through a lot of hard work. And he's still working at forming salvation in us, performing his strange and wonderful work. But he's taken used people, hasn't he? People out of this world. And he forgives our sins, cleans us up, and makes virgins of us. So he can take that which is unclean and make it clean. He can take that which had no value and make it of great value. Because he's willing to put in the time and the energy and the work to make it into something beautiful. I remember one case, I took some old boxcar floors that were out of oak and mahogany, and they were full of nails and grease and dirt, and I saw, this is solid oak, but what can I do with it? And nobody would plane it for me, and they're planer because it would tear up their machinery with the nails and grit and dirt and rocks that were embedded into that wood. So finally I had a brainstorm, and that was to sandblast it. I took all that out, it pitted the wood to some degree, and it actually made it into beautiful wood. And I paneled the house with it. The old used stuff. And if you'd have bought that much oak, you'd have had to have bought three banks and sold them in order to, to have enough money to buy that much oak. And in case case where a gymnasium flooded, and we, the, uh, the principal of the school in that case was burning the wood in his fireplace. I bought it from him for a nickel a foot, which is almost nothing. Took a truckload home, and I paneled the house. I took the basketball and volleyball lines off of it, drew a planer, and uh, handled a house with it. I had solid oak and solid maple walls in that house. It was beautiful. But I had to transform something that was basically worthless and headed to the garbage heap into something beautiful. And that's exactly what God is doing with us. Taking that which had no value and turning it into great value. It reflects his spirit, his mind, his attitudes. So he took second hand rose in that sense as the song goes. But you have to take hold and put forth the effort to increase it yourself. Christ will not be happy if we laid it up passively or we gave it to the banker and let him increase it for us. He wants us to take an active role and to really increase and multiply something, you have to work and he ties this to ruling cities. If we have not produced the kind of character and spiritual value that is required to rule cities and do it his way, then he's not going to give us any cities to rule. Well, we might have had, let's say we were a person who had a a good attitude in life. Maybe we weren't righteous, maybe we didn't understand God's truth at all, but we sort of had a good value, I mean a good attitude in life. Well, is he going to let us rule cities? No we have to submit ourselves to his will and do it as he wishes to come under his authority and that's a very great part of this particular parable in other words can you rule your own spirit I ask you can you passively approach life and say oh I guess I'll be I guess I'll be righteous by the time Christ gets back are you going to become righteous with that attitude oh I think it'll happen You know, um, I probably won't have to do very much. I'm pretty good to start with. So I can just sit here and and it'll sort of just happen. No, it doesn't. If you're going to rule your own spirit, what do you have to do? You have to work hard at controlling your emotions, your feelings, your attitudes. It doesn't come easy. It isn't passive at all. And ruling cities is not a passive operation either, is it? Ruling cities requires a great deal of planning, a great deal of work. It doesn't just happen. I mean, there are people right here in this country in South Africa right now who are trying to rule cities by basically just sort of letting them rule themselves. It's not working too well, is it? No, it takes active involvement. And that's what Christ is looking for us, in us, with that which he gives us. Now Satan is a net l- loser. If we have his attitudes and the attitudes of this world, we'll bankrupt ourselves spiritually because we're not putting forth the effort to invest our own time and energy, and um, well, our time and our en- energy in his, in God's spiritual treasure house. So ten times your money requires a lot of work. Banks give you 3 to 10 percent. Takes years to double it before he mentioned that. Stocks the same way, except in exceptional years. Now let me ask the question, do you dare in any way, can you dare, afford to leave it in others' hands? Can you leave it in my hands, Frank's hands, Herbert Armstrong's hands, whoever your particular leader at the moment might be, or teacher? Can you leave your spiritual treasure passively in their hands for them to take care of? Or do you have to take charge and increase it yourself? You have to take charge of your life. You have to work at it. That's what he tells us in Haggai. Fear not. Be of good courage and work. It takes work. God does not intend us to be passive in any form. You know, even people who passively invest their money in a sense in the stock market still study that market pretty hard. Because they want to know if they're gaining their best value in this stock or if they might be better to move it to another stock. So some of them spend almost full time just studying that stock market. So it might be a passive activity in one sense, but the work and the study that goes into it still requires a lot of effort. Or some, are you just entrusting it? to some company that uh, that you bought stock in, and they might not be doing well. They might lose your money for you. So you have to have a certain amount of hands-on even in the stock market. It's more passive if you leave it in the bank. I mean, it's just supposed to draw that much interest. Once you have character or spiritual treasure, you can take it with you. When you die, that stays with you. Most people look at money is paying the bills. You know, they they work, they take home a paycheck, and they pay the bills with it. And they're not looking at active increase. They, it's hard to get above the treading water level in most lives today because of the circumstances or just getting by, they might say. We're just getting by. We can pay the rent. We can buy our food. We can transport ourselves. But that's all we have. Now, in one sense, looking at it, that is okay but in terms of spiritual treasure just getting by is not enough. God says it has to be increased exponentially. On a spiritual level you've got to invest the spirit of God. You've got to share it. Outgoing concern is the way Mr. Armstrong uh, uh, defined it. You can have all knowledge you can have all knowledge of prophecy and those may be gems of truth in a way but is all knowledge and is knowledge of all prophecy able to be counted as spiritual treasure? I think I think not. Unless it's combined with love, it has no value. What did he say? You can have all knowledge, and you can have knowledge of all prophecies and several other things he mentioned, but if you don't have love, how much do you have? Nothing. No spiritual value in having a lot of knowledge of Scripture. No spiritual value in having a lot of knowledge of the future. Unless it is combined with love, that has no treasure in heaven involved with it. Because the knowledge has to be used to help people. The knowledge is of no value, as Mr. Armstrong termed it, unless it is used. So that's the point that Paul is trying to get across to us there. Study for the sake of study and for personal enhancement or for intellectual vanity does no one else any good unless you share it with them. And if you share it with them, then it has great value because it helps their spiritual life. So the whole thing is sharing. That's what God and the the Father and the Son are doing with us, sharing that which they have. And if we pick up on it and come to think like they think and act like they act, then they will preserve our life throughout all eternity with them. That way, they have shared more than anyone else. If it's our fellowship, indeed, is with them, as First John one points out. But it also says down there, our fellowship is with each other as well. I've known people who did a lot of study and never shared it. Well, what good is it? Just there for your own personal vanity, I suppose. Praying for others increases our spiritual value. You can't out God. Now, how many of us, prob- how many of us, I wonder, pray as much for others as we do for ourselves? We tend, by nature, to pray more for ourselves, our needs, our every, everything we think we might need or want, than we do for others. It's just a natural human tendency. But he says we should love others as much as we love ourselves. So I think perhaps if we want real spiritual treasure in heaven, rather than making negative comments about someone, we might spend that time praying for them. Now, we pray for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's not selfish to pray for our own needs. But that we give other people as much time. tithing principle might apply here as well. You give 10% to the church, the ministry, and they're then supposed to, in turn, take care of the spiritual needs of the congregation. But the principle could apply here as well that you keep nine-tenths for yourself. In other words, the minister can help you, but nine-tenths of the effort needs to come from you in your own prayer and study and dedication to the thoughts and the ways of God God doesn't require we give more than 10% in that sense but we have to actively put the rest of it to work our talents our abilities our time for the benefit of others otherwise it has no value now let's see where was I going to head next here I guess we're getting down probably the time I should begin to wrap this up. So I'll go to this section here to back up what I've been saying here. I've got several scriptures I think we need to consider. That we cannot sit and say, I think I'm okay. That we have to do something. Now let's go first of all to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. And here I want uh, verse 12. Matthew eleven twelve. 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was for to come, speaking of John the Baptist. In other words, getting into the kingdom of God is not a passive thing. We have to force the issue. We have to, like we were trying to take something from someone, we have to be violent and forceful about it. Passivity is not enough. Saying, well, I guess I better love the Lord, and yet we do nothing. All these things I've been talking here about, visiting the widow and the orphan, and controlling our thoughts, controlling our attitudes, you you have to force those things. The mind naturally will daydream about things that maybe it shouldn't be thinking of that might be sin, and even in, in the things that may not be sin, but just vain, empty things that don't account for anything, that will ulti- ultimately perish. And you have to force your mind away from those things. It isn't easy. It's sometimes, I have to get violent with myself at times to get my mind in a right channel when it's drifted off into a wrong channel. It's something we have to do daily and it, it is a forceful effort that is required. So you're not going to get it by laying your spiritual value up in a napkin and hoping that it gets better over time. It just won't happen that way. In other words, we're not sitting back, but we're in active pursuit of the kingdom of God. 2 Peter 1.10, 2 Peter 1.10. Let's see several along these lines of the kind of verbs he uses to describe what we need to be doing. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things you shall never fall. So it is a diligent effort, not a passive effort. Not laying it in a napkin, but actively, busily, diligently making sure that it happens. Uh, while we're here, Second Peter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, that's one of the fruits of his spirit, without spot, remember what we read in James, not being spotted by the world, and blameless so that no one can attach blame to you based on the things that you do and have done in your life. So you have to be diligent to keep this world from spotting you. It's not passive at all. It's a very active role that we must take. What about where Christ said we had to seek it as gold? Uh, If we knew there were gold coins buried out here in this yard, I don't know whether they would have a yard with grass on it at the end of the day or not. You know, there's a whole pile of uh, twenty-dollar gold, $20 gold pieces out there. We'd, we probably wouldn't even care about these people's yard. We'd go out there and dig their gold up if we could find it. Uh, people, people have done some strange things for gold. The gold rush in the the uh, in California, the gold rush in Alaska. Men went in the winter time over mountains with packs on their backs to go to a place that they had heard had gold. And most a lot of them died. A lot of them starved to death. A lot of them died in the cold. Uh, But it didn't stop them. More followed those. Well, that one died, I'll get his. I'll take the things that he has on his body lying there in the snow, and I'll eat them or I'll use them for my own. People go mad with what they call gold fever. And it's a very active thing. You don't sit in your drawing room and say, Well, I hope my gold increases. Now, when there's a gold rush on, whether it be gold or diamonds here in Africa or whatever the precious thing might be, people are willing to die for it. And so do we. The riches cannot be compared spiritually with what the riches are here on this earth. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Back there, Hebrews 10, and here I want verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So the fellow who drew back was the fellow who wrapped it in a napkin. He drew back out of fear, out of risk of losing, Instead of a positive attitude of I'm not going to, not only am I not going to lose it I'm going to trade I'm going to increase it and spiritual value is the same way it is a diligent positive active effort uh, Jude three Jude three beloved when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation It was needful for me to write to you and exhort you. Now, exhortation is a a very active verb. It's it's not a mild uh, statement, that you know, this is something that you ought to do. It implies a very uh, active thing. Exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Earnest contention. Really working at it. 2 Timothy 1-7. I won't turn and read that one, but it says, He has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, and of power, and of a sound mind. Power is the word I wanted to use there. It's very active. He empowers us to do things. Now, we might not overcome as human beings in this world. You know, we might be just like our fathers were, and our grandfathers were, but He expects us to change. And he gives by the the power of his spirit the capacity and the ability to be different than what we have then. And that is how our spiritual value is increased. Uh, Revelation 3. I've, I've already mentioned that. But it says, I would you were either hot or cold. That you're not just sitting there passively expecting things to happen for you spiritually, but that you heat up. Well, hot water is active water, isn't it? When you bring the pot to boil, it's a very active thing. It's bubbling and, and perking and making noises. Actually accomplishing something. Killing bacteria by boiling. It's not sitting there passively in the pot. Sitting there passively, it probably would increase in bacteria over a period of time. You know, it's sort of lukewarm and, and uh, it would get worse instead of better as water. But the boiling makes it better. Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. Verse 16. Uh, No, it doesn't have 16 verses. What did I write down here? I wrote Hebrews 5. I did do that. Oh, okay. I was looking. Oh, wait a minute. My eye's not falling on it. The one I had, well, yeah, that's where I was headed next. Thank you. It says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, not sheepishly. Um, is it four? Okay, I had the wrong wrong chapter there. Verse sixteen of chapter four of Hebrews. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace so we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is to be a bold effort. A you know, laying nothing in a napkin is not bold not bold at all. If you're going to increase it, you have, have, you have to have a certain boldness. And that's the one he says he will take pleasure in, not the one who shrinks back. The fellow that did the most trading risk more in some ways. We might even risk our own life ultimately if we step out and our light is shining on a hill. But that risk is worth what we will gain spiritually in the long, long run for having done so. So we have to step out. Maybe our personality is such that we're shy or, or a little backward socially or whatever, and we have trouble fellowshipping. We need to learn to be more bold with our personalities so that we can share what we're learning. Share our lives with each other. Be friends, be brothers, be sisters together. It's a family thing that God talks about. And it's not always easy. But we, we all have a certain amount of strength back in us. But we have to learn to be bold for the benefit of others. Matthew 5. let's go, let's go back to that one because this is an important concept uh, here in Matthew 5. And Christ, remember the one about the violence taking it violently? Here in Matthew 5 verse 29. And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into the grave. And if your right hand offend, it, offend you, cut it off. Cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into the grave. Now does he expect us to cut our, to pull our eyes out of our heads and cut our hands off? I don't think so. That's not the point he's getting at. He's saying if there's any part of you that is keeping you away from doing the things that need to be done, you have to excise that from you violently. Whatever measures need to be taken to remove that bad part of your character or personality, you have to take. People sometimes get the attitude, well, that's just the way I am, you'll hear them say. I guess that's just the way I am. They're not applying the Scripture. They're saying, it's too hard for me. I guess the Lord will just have to take me as I am. And the prophets even sing a song about that. Just as I am, Lord. They sing that and feel all good inside because they figure that they can stay the way they are and God will take them into, well, they think, heaven. That's not what these Scriptures say. They say, you can't stay as you are. You've got to violently, actively, remove that which should not be there First Corinthians 9.24 I won't turn back and read that one necessarily but there's where Paul uses the analogy of the race probably the Olympics he was speaking maybe uh, but he says they they have to all run and the one that runs the hardest who trains the best and runs the fastest wins the prize and they don't all get a prize for just having showed up you know well, I don't really want to run, but I'd sure like a prize. I don't want to train, but I'd sure like a prize. And a lot of people approach Christianity that way. I don't really want to study. I don't want to pray. I don't want to share with my neighbor. I don't want to smile, but I want in the kingdom of God. Now, what are you going to do when you get in the kingdom of God if God allowed you in under those circumstances? you can go sit in the corner and frown for all eternity? No, the character has to change. The attitude has to change. And it does not come easily. All of these scriptures point that out. Hebrews 12, verse 4. Going back to Hebrews again. This is a very powerful one. Hebrews 12, um, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and we have the joy of eternal life set before us, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't care how much shame and acrimony would be cast upon him. He despised that shame and said, I'm going to do what my father tells me to do, regardless of the cost. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Now, does that indicate anything passive to you? Resisting unto blood? Whether you try so hard you sweat blood or whether you resist to the point you're willing to shed your blood for eternal life and martyrdom or whatever. And the man who wrote this apparently had to do that. He could have given in and maybe saved his hide for a bit, but he had to resist up to the point of death just as Christ did, to die for what he believed. And this is the way we have to seek God's spirit. This is the way we have to seek his kingdom. This is the way that we increase our spiritual value. Because it simply does not come, you cannot passively overcome. It takes work. It takes sweat. And I think it's important that we understand this that we work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. A certain fear that we might not make it. And fear and trembling does what? It activates. One way or another, it activates. It either activates you if you're in in the trenches in war, it activates you to fight hard and shoot straight, or it activates you to run to the back line. Fear and trembling will activate you one way or another a big game hunter here in Africa charged by a lion has fear and trembling. And he will be activated by that to either perform properly or to run and he's going to die anyway. So fear and trembling is a good thing. We can't go through this human life blasé, lukewarm. We have to take hold Seize salvation. Take it violently. Not allow our minds and our bodies to be passive. So that's what I wanted to emphasize here today is that, well, Micah 4, another one that comes to mind, be in pain and prevail and bring forth, he tells us. He equates it to childbirth, that it takes, childbirth is not a passive thing. You know, they tell you, push, (laughs) work, Make this thing happen. Don't just sit there. Make it happen. If we don't work, we don't eat of the spiritual things. And again, Haggai said, Fear not, be of good courage and work. So that was the emphasis I wanted to try to get across today is that it's, it's one thing to sit there and say, Well, he tells me to increase it by five. He tells me to increase it by ten. But what does it take? How do you do that? You have to actively go about trading or nothing happens. You can't passively sit back. And all of these scriptures we reviewed here, I I reviewed mainly from that standpoint, that they're all active uh, events that require effort. And Mr. Armstrong, I think, put it that way. He said, God actually is the one who works salvation in you, but you have to work as if it all depended on you. And that's really what is required to build that so that we have spiritual value when Christ returns. Not just having sat here and say, well, you know, you gave me your spirit when I was baptized back there and had hands laid on me, and I'm just as good now as I was then. And he'll say, depart from me, you wicked servant. But if we say, you gave me your spirit and now that spirit is produced in me. Love, peace, joy, happiness, patience, long all those things that are mentioned there in Galatians 6. Then you'll say, Wow, you have spiritual value. You have developed the kind of character that I can use to rule cities. Be over five, be over ten. Rule with me in my kingdom because you have increased that which you started with. That which I gave you as an earnest has now made you valuable unto salvation. So let's use the parable of the pounds not just as intellectual understanding, but go to work, trading, building, using, taking it, rather than just sitting here expecting it. And that's what Christ expected of those people when he gave them that pound. You get to work with that. You make it worth a whole lot more than it was when I gave it to you. And if you do that, you will be called a good and faithful servant.